You're welcome, people of Anik. That was the greatest song ever written. <laughs> or not. That's Charlie Sheen in full meltdown mode there. So, uh, in honour of him, we're going to have a by winning movie hour. Indeed. And to kick things off for the UK's top ten. Welcome back, Paul, we should say, to kick off first, because it, uh, it's going to feel like old times with you around. Yes, uh, which means we will mention deliverance, we will <laughs> mention stuff that we shouldn't, and... We'll yeah. go on for We'll bring everything back to Ghostbusters and Mrs. Doubtfire and Home Alone. And with a bit of luck, we'll manage to get everything in before 11 o'clock. So let's let's uh, dive straight in, shall we? Yes, the UK's top ten. and number ten, we have a what? Uh, Mars Needs Moms, which um, sort of underperformed in America quite a lot, and it looks like it's going to be a massive flop here. The last time I checked, it had taken something like 36 million on a budget of 150, you know, going by the rules that you have to make two and a half times the budget back to be a hit. I mean, it's not terrible. I mean, I like Robert Zemeckis, who's on sort of involved in a production level awry and I don't believe all the articles that say that this is going to be the death of 3D as much as I'd like that. I think that the problem with it is that it's just a bit too ordinary and the story isn't very good and for all the good things about kind of Robert Zemeckis' earlier ventures into motion capture with the Polar Express and Beowulf, he is starting to become sort of a prisoner of his own technology. I think he needs to go and make sort of a smaller, intimate, more live-action film. Yeah, it's... Um they just look freaky. It's the dead eyes. It is. It's, it's actually referred to in the industry as dead eye syndrome. Yeah. Because they can't mocap people's eye movement. It just looks weird. It's just like Night of the Living Dead or zombies. They just have that look that like <laughs> they're, they're all stoned out of the tree. And you think, hmm, I wouldn't be, if I wasn't tipping my kids to see a film, you take me to see something nice and pleasant like Winnie the Pooh, which we'll get to later on. Yeah, I mean, stoned out of their tree, you know, compared to this or your highness. Mm. <laughs> we'll move on to that later. <laughs> Shall we carry on? Yeah, number nine uh, is... It's The Roommate, which is rubbish. It's an essentially a remake of Single White Female with worse acting and unnecessary shower scenes, so forget it. Yes, moving swiftly on. Yes. Um, at eight, there's Unknown, which I'm amazed that it's still there, because it's been in for something like six or seven weeks now. I'm amazed. I know that Liam Neeson's done films like Rob Roy, he was uh, quite gone Jane in Star Wars and stuff, but it just doesn't have the look of an action star, in my opinion. You know, you've got films like Wanted, was it? no, Taken, sorry, uh, Taken, yes. and then this, it's just like, this seems like a remake of Taken. Right. It's essentially the same sort of thing. It Being is going beating people up. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is broadly in the same view of Taken, although it isn't, no, it's racial politics are a lot less questionable. I think it's worth seeing only for the supporting role of Bruno Gantz, because the plot is essentially a rip-off of The Lady Vanishes, although it is much better than the 70s remake of that film, so you're not missing a whole amount. But if you've seen Taken and you like that sort of thing, then I'd say it's probably more the same, you'd probably be right up your street, really. Yeah, but there's also a sequel to Taken coming out next year. So. Ah, do we find out who's driving the boat? <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be a plot spoiler, wouldn't it? So. Yeah, it's been out long enough. Anyway, Taken, at the end of Taken, he kills everyone. He stood on the boat with his daughter. Who's driving the boat, though? He, <coughs> surely he, that boat should crash into the <coughs> canal. Yes. Never mind. We'll brush that under the carpet like yes. the man who made the film. Millions <laughs> of times thought, I'll just leave that out. Anyway, carry on, I'll get angry. <laughs> um, number seven is uh, Thank You, which is a Bollywood film uh, which wasn't press-screened. Uh, the story is there's three men who are all cheating on their respective wives. The wives hire a private detective to sort of catch them in the act. Like a lot of Bollywood stuff, it's not very good. It's notable only for a scene in the trailer where there's a guy uh, at a pool party surrounded by half-naked women and he's lying on a sun lounger playing a flute. That's the only <laughs> memorable bit and it's in the trailer so you don't have to see the film. 
Yeah, you don't get that in any other film. That's that's actually quite good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, yes, anyway. Uh, the e <laughs> Sorry, The Eagles at Six, which um, I can't understand really why so many critics have been down on, because it is a good sort of fun, romping, 12A certificate action adventure film. I mean, it's not as good as Gladiator, but it's, you know, directed by Kevin MacDonald, who made Last King of Scotland and Touching the Void, is a very visceral director, shot by Anthony Dodd-Mandle, who's a great cinematographer, shot Slumdog Millionaire. Like I say, it's not as good as Gladiator, but it is good fun. I wonder if it's, um, it's the Channing Tatum effect. He is just basically... A big, good-looking person who kind of looks a bit wooden or who's carved from oak, you know Didn't I mean? you describe him as a walking lump of granite? Yeah. Or have I misquoting you? Yeah, he's, yeah he's, got like, he's got, like, the world's greatest chin, and he's just, he's just a little too good-looking to be on films. You don't really buy him, because you just kind of go, he's, he's a model. He, whatever role you put him in, he was in Dear John, he was in, when that, what was that dancing thing, Step Up the Streets or something like that? He was in one something of those like two. That, um, yeah, he's just a little too good looking, and so he and he never really looks dishevelled in this film. He just looks like he's been on hair and makeup before every scene. And it's just yeah. Whereas we have his scruffy mate Jimmy. Uh, what was I going to say? Jimmy Elliot. Jamie Bell. Billy Elliot. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> He'll always be Billy Elliot to me. Yeah. Because um, um, so there is one Channing Tatum performance in which he is good, called Fighting, but that's because he's getting his face smashed <laughs> in every other scene. So you know he can't just go to the makeup trailer. What's the plot of Fighting? <laughs> He fights, and then he loses a fight, and then he wins one, and then who knows? Yeah. Fair enough. Anyway, no, you don't need to see the film. Yeah, I've read a few reviews where they've seen, oh, it's not historically accurate, so it's no good. It's like, in the grand scheme of things, the amount of stuff that's put in films which isn't historically accurate, to level that as a criticism against it is a bit harsh. Yeah. Did you read Peter Hitchens' arguments decry um, articles which were decrying the King's speech, saying, yes, it's a really good film, but it's also massively historically accurate, no, why are we teaching these things to our children? It's like... Not really about that, Peter. Just, we're, we're, we're not teaching it to them. It's it's entertainment. Yes. The kids aren't going to write. They don't write. Burn all the books. Just stick the DVD on. That's not how history works. Now, yeah. I, I mean, obviously, we have to draw the line somewhere. No, we we have to accept that the Americans did not discover the Enigma Code, as U five seven one tells us, and they did not win the Battle of Pearl Harbor, as Michael Bay wants us to know. <laughs> But, you know, in the context of cin cinema, is, no, it's an entertainment medium, it's an art form, it's not um, necessarily a means for lecturing people, although Oliver Stone would clearly disagree. <laughs> uh, we best canter through. Um, Sucker Punches at five, further proof if ever it were needed that Zack Snyder is a flashy, talentless hack. It is just adolescent, chauvinist, fanboy tripe. It's my worrying that he's doing Superman, isn't it? Yeah, my only hope with Superman is because it's being produced by Christopher Nolan. So, you'd, so what I want is for sort of Zack Snyder to be behind the camera saying, okay, we're going to do this, and Christopher and just standing behind him with a big stick going, can't do this, can't do that, cut that out, get rid of those costumes, focus on the ideas. Yeah. Um, Zach, he doesn't yeah. talk like that. <laughs> <laughs> Zach, right, I hear what you're saying, Zach. Try, to, try it another way. No, 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 no. Try it another way. <laughs> just do it this way. Get out the seat. Hopefully you'll just sort of like, maybe Zack Snyder, can we wish an accident on him so that Christopher Nolan has to step in? No. No, we can't wish death on people. No, no, I didn't say death. I didn't. You said death, I said accident. Okay, that, that's... No, no like, jo uh, like we jo jogger's nipple or tennis elbow or something like something that will just keep him off so Christopher Nolan steps in. No, we could put him under so that he get in gets incepted to actually become a good director. Ah, so we plant the idea of good. Yes. Uh, and we take, can we take stuff out of his brain as well? Like the idea that, that going back to Sucker Punch, that this is just essentially four music videos. And in those, it's basically this girl, she, she's locked up in an asylum or sort of a prison stroke asylum. And she escapes into her own imagination. And in her imagination, her and her friends are whores by the look of it. <laughs> That's basically <laughs> it, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, if you go, if people in asylums, Probably whores. That's the message I got from that film. <laughs> yeah, we should definitely in we should definitely incept Zack Snyder to become a good filmmaker. Yeah, carry on. Okay, uh, number four. Let, let's just canter through these quickly so we can get on to Mad Max Three. Um, f 
hops at four. I don't find Russell Brand funny. This is essentially Alvin and the Chipmunks. We will, we will, uh, we'll, we'll not get into this. Oh, not. Right? This isn't another thing we disagree on. Now, first the Deer Hunter, a, then Ghostbusters, then Russell Brand. Well, Deer Hunter is a good film. No, it's not. It is. It isn't. It possibly shouldn't mean the film my parents saw on their honeymoon, but that's a, that's another point. Well, uh, I'm not going <laughs> to take it out on your parents, but you know. But no, I'm a big fan of Russell Brand. I think sometimes he. You get to typecast into films to play the English buffoon, so hopefully, I think Arthur might be the pinnacle of that, and hopefully after that, he, I don't know, what he needs is to shave his head and do something where he's like, plays an He needs to play a cancer patient. Yeah, yeah. Like someone who's really ill and just like, go, ooh, serious. But I don't think he will. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, it, notwithstanding my problems with Russell Brand, I mean, the story itself is essentially, it's directed by the same guy who made Alvin and the Chipmunks, so it is the same... Good pedigree. Yeah, it is the same <laughs> idea of, you know, CG animals into the live-action world and, you know, bad slapstick happens. I mean, it isn't the worst film in the world, but it's just not any good at all. Who's the unfortunate human in this? Um... Not Chris O'Donnell, though. No, he's not Chris Dogs, wasn't he? No, he. It's not Chris O'Donnell. Um, I can't remember. We'll get back to you. Yeah. Okay. We'll look it up when we're playing some Tina Turner. <laughs> that, that, that that will make sense in a bit. That's just not how yes. we roll. <laughs> Steady on. It's not even quarter past ten yet. Right. Carry on. Uh, Limitless is at three, which is an ex which is essentially an extended sort of Twilight Zone episode with little bits of early Darren Aronofsky in there somewhere. But it is a partial return to form for Russell Brand. And, you know, it's trashy 12A multiplex. Russell Brand? Fans. Robert De Niro. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, What a, what dear. a slip up. <laughs> <laughs> the How did I confuse those? The Deer Hunter star and Russell Brand would have been complete. You might have liked Don't! <laughs> don't mention that! No! <laughs> Three hours just made even more ghastly. With his gunny one. No! <laughs> Let's move on. Number two is Source Code. You can go first because we went to see this on Monday. Yeah, Source Code. It is a sort of sci-fi thriller but set in the real world but also set in... Oh, it's, it's hard to explain. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal is a guy who keeps, going, who keeps getting sent back to the last eight minutes before a train explodes. And he has to, each time he goes back, he has to try and figure out where the bomber is, who the bomber is, hunt down suspects, how to stop it, because the information he gathers from there will help a later event. And it, it's kind of, my mate said it's like, miss, um, like Groundhog Day with explosions, which is a one way of summing it up, because it's the same thing over and over again, but not in a born repetitive way, which was a worry before we went in. And, yeah, I'm having to bite my tongue, so some things I want to mention, but don't want to give the plot away. Yeah, we, we have to be careful of spoilers. I mean, I, we went to see this together on Mondays, and I said, and I think it's really great. I mean, Duncan Jones, who directed it and also directed Moon, which was really great two years ago, he is shaping up to be a really smart British director. I mean, this is a much more mainstream effort in the sense that there's more money involved. There are sort of bigger special effects, you know, there's lots of CGI flames, although they don't look... CGI particularly, but there is substance all the way through. I mean, there's there's sorts of ideas about uh, soldiers being asked to serve their country even in death. There's you know, the ethics of using people's memories, and there's all sorts of connections with things like Terry Gilliam's Twelve Monkeys about you know, is it ethical to go back and change the past in order to change the future, and people sort of di getting distracted from the mission along the way. I don't think it's a masterpiece, but you know, I think when we discussed it, you you thought we sort of both agreed that the ending sort of worked, but sort of didn't, and we don't want to give away what it is, but, um... Yeah, either be confused by it, hate it, or go outstanding. It's, it's, it's not, well, it's, it's Marmite, can you have something that's got three options if it's a Marmite-type film? A three-way Marmite, yes. Yeah, a three-way Marmite-type film. Um, great performance by Jake Gyllenhaal, he's funny, he's also, like, kicks ass at different points throughout the film. Uh, Michelle Monaghan, is yeah. that right? She was good, and Farmiga, I forget her surname. Uh, it's Vera Farmiga. Vera Farmiga, um... She was, I think she was the best thing in the film. Uh, she was just had to be the, the, 
the, should it be the straight person and that yeah, she is very straight. Should it be the, the the ethics and the, the moral of the film? Because her boss, played by Jeffrey Wright, is very is it not hamming it up and it's not like over the top, but is very sneering. He's just a bad guy. He's got the crutch and he just like there's bits where he's sneering at from just sending him back and he's just very. He's a bit over the top at times, but it, it kind of works. Yeah, I mean, if you've seen the recent Bond films, um, the same actor plays the new incarnation of Felix Leiter, so it's a sort of, from that point of view, it's an eerie foreshadowing of what Felix is going to turn into if and when Sam Mendes gets the latest Bond film finished. True. Has he still been divorced by Kate Winslet? They, ha they have divorced, I All think. Right, so he's got his head straight, right? Do us a Bond, please, Sam. Do us a Bond. <laughs> at number one, we have a what? Uh, Rio, which is you now a perfectly passable, innocuous animation from the makers of Ice Age. I mean, it is Jesse Eisenberg who sort of redeemed himself for me with the social network after years of just doing sort of indie pindy stuff and being annoying. He, he is essentially doing Mark Zuckerberg as a blue parrot. And it's going to be interesting to see whether or not, as a result of that success and an Oscar nomination, he's just going to do the Mark Zuckerberg thing for the next few performances and turn into Michael Serra. Yes, yeah. That's, that's a, it's always a risk, isn't it? Yeah. Because he, he's, got, he's, got, he's got talent, that lad. He's, he's, yeah. I think he's got a, a bigger range than Michael Serra. Definitely. Yes. Um, Although Michael Cera is great in Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Yeah, but that it's, I can't really see where he'll go. He needs to shave his head and play a cancer victim. <laughs> That's the solution for all actors. Anyway, well, um, if you want to win an Oscar, it is you true. Know. But um, I think Rio. For months and months, I've seen that damn orange advert. Other mobile phone services are available and are better. Um, where it's you know that the adverts I had the, before Christmas, it was the Gulliver's Travels one and. It's just annoyed us for months and months that yes. whenever the film comes out that I just you just don't want to watch the film. It has nothing there. I mean, if you're a parent, you've been to see loads of films with kids, you'd be going, oh, do I want to watch 90 minutes of that blooming annoying thing, which annoys us. I don't know. Them adverts need stopped, I think. Yes, to go back to the uh, the ones of you no know, John Cleese pitching films to the uh, to the Orange Wednesday guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just yeah, because just they, they were it was different. They changed them more regularly, whereas now. That one's, I say, Jack Black was Gulliver's Travels. It was about four months' worth of stuff, and we yeah. were just like, how long is this going to go? And then the, before that, it was the 18 for two, three months, and then now it's been real. It's just like, yeah, change it a bit more. Yeah, I mean, there, there is commercial sense in doing it in the sense that having mobile phone adverts that far in advance probably explain why Gulliver's Travel stayed in the top ten for so long because when we were still hosting this show together it just wouldn't go away for something like nine or ten weeks it would not die <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah I mean when we come on to your highness you'll you know when um which film was it that you were talking about saying you know I'm glad someone's playing Jack Black oh it was uh, the Green Hornet yeah because when we come on to your highness it's another example of no this is something that Jack Black would have done two years ago but I'm glad that he isn't Right. Well, so yeah, that's the top ten. Out of the stuff in the top ten, obviously go and see Source Code. If that's not your bag, uh, the Eagle is probably your best bet. Yeah. What we didn't uh, just to go back, what we didn't mention about Source Code is it just it's a good ninety minutes solid start finish. There's no lagging or anything like that. It's not like one of these films where the the round up like you know, I'm looking at you Avatar, which is like three hours long and like that. Mm. It's just had all the fat trimmed off it. A sign of a, as you say, a really good director who just gets things done. And yeah. So if you're one of these people who don't like we getting numb bum syndrome in the cinema this is ideal yeah absolutely obviously it, it runs to slightly more than two hours when you include the adverts but yeah it is a snappy 90 minute thriller and it True. works and you can also leave early <laughs> like the guy who's cheering on the terrorists never mind <laughs>
Which guy was that? Oh, was that the guy in front of me who was shaking? Yeah, he got really agitated, I think. I think he was just, I think he really wanted the terrorists to win. He must be one of those people that cheers the joke on when he watches Batman. Jumping to conclusions, as, as jumping to conclusions go, it's... No, no, he was a terrorist. <laughs> Fact. <laughs> Shall we move on? Yeah, because I think you probably can get sacked from volunteer work. <laughs> yes, so shall we move on? This is the fresh sound for the district. Live, Live from Attic. This is Lionheart Radio. Shall we move straight into the cult film and then play the song? Let's, let's yeah. Okay. So, um, you, you, you give me the sign, you nod or say play the song, and that'll be the code word for play the song. All right, so this week's cult film, uh, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome from 1985, which is the third and final instalment of the Mad Max trilogy, which was created and directed by George Miller. If you missed uh, Richard and myself giving our verdicts on uh, parts one and two, uh, go to the uh, interview section of the line hot website and you can download those as a podcast um this is an interesting installment because its production was very much mired in tragedy they were all set to go ahead with it in 1983 and they went out sort of location scouting but then uh the producer byron kennedy who had sort of been with george miller from beginning they he had a helicopter accident and sadly didn't make it through and after that miller sort of lost interest in the project and dropped out he eventually agreed to come back but only to shoot the action sequences with all the other bits being handled by this TV director called George Ogilvy. And when you watch the film, that sort of mismatch is quite clear because there are sort of pockets of real energy in amidst lots of other stuff which, as for reasons we'll come on to, doesn't really work. This also had a lot more money involved than the previous films. I mean, the first two Mad Max films were made for something like half a million Australian dollars each, whereas this had a budget of $12 million. And it made about three times as much at the box office. So, in terms of financial success, it isn't strictly a cult film, but in terms of its relationship with the rest of the series and in terms of the success it had outside of Australia and the States, I think it could just about be construed as one. No, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So the plot is, um, it takes place about 15 years after the events of Mad Max 2. So you have Max Rokotansky, or Mad Max, played by Mel Gibson. He's driving a camel train through uh, this unnamed desert when he's attacked by a plane and all his worldly goods are stolen he follows this plane to a place called barter town which is this sort of very elaborate settlement in the middle of nowhere which has got food fuel and a government he meets this character called auntie entity who is played by tina turner who originally thinks of him as a criminal but it turns out that her government is being undermined by this gangster called master blaster who is controlling the energy supply and she sends max into the thunderdome which is this big sort of cage-like arena to fight them subsequently he gets banished from Bartertone and he's rescued by this community of children and then the plot starts to unravel from there. Um, at this point we will play you um, the, the uh, song that plays over the end credits from the soundtrack which was released uh, as a single by Tina Turner in 1985 and it was a big old hit I think. It certainly was. Little fact for you there, people of Anik and citizens of Earth. In the background, there was a lot of little children singing. One of those children was future England rugby captain, Lawrence Delalio. I still don't believe that that's true. That is, that is 100% true. Google it. That's <laughs> oh, so if it's on Google, it must be true. Yeah. <laughs> right, um, so that was uh, an excerpt from the soundtrack of Mad Max 3. Um, here's the thing. When you're making a threequel, there are generally three things that can happen. You can either really strike lucky and make it the best of the bunch, so Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban would be an example, or The Born Ultimatum, I suppose, would be a good example of that. Yeah, possibly Toy Story 3, which is Yes, yeah, so I would agree with that as well. Um, the other thing, the second thing you can do is you can sort of, if the second one has been a bit rubbish, you can sort of 
take the ideas from the first one and sort of refine them. So in the case of something like Die Hard with a Vengeance or Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which for me is the best of the original trilogy, obviously we have our disagreements over the fourth instalment. Um, yes. True, true, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just a grimace in the corner. And then the main thing that happens with three course, however, is that they are a massive disappointment. You know, the, the list is endless, but, you know, Superman 3 with Richard Pryor, Spider-Man 3 where just too many villains, and Evil Dead 3 Army of Darkness, which just, you know, is a PG-13 rated piece of piffle. Mad Max 3 is definitely in the last category in the sense that compared to the other two films, it is a disappointment, but it isn't an, a, a complete failure in the way that the others are. I mean, there are interesting ideas in the film, and it is the most technically accomplished because there was more money involved, but sort of every everything that's good about it belies something that's equal and oppositely bad, so in the end it's a sort of frustrating film. Yeah. So, w Would sorry. you describe the film as, as camp? Well, elements. Are. Yeah, I mean, Mad Max is rooted within camp to some extent because of the, because of the costumes and because of the style of the fighting. Although there are brutal elements in it, there are still mm. it's it's broadly within the camp genre in the sense that there's not sort of realistic depiction of pain and so forth it, in the third instalment. It does have a battle of haircuts as well. Never mind the Thunderdome two-minute <laughs> woman leave Tina Turner, Tina Turner's hair versus Mel Gibson's mullet. It's, uh, it's a tough one to call, isn't it? How much of the budget <laughs> do they spend on hairspray? Because they just, no, no, it's half the budget gone. Yeah, that's why there's a whole new in there. It's exactly above where that was filmed. <laughs> so let's start with the good stuff. I mean, the interesting thing about Mad Max 3 is that it attempts to address exactly how post-apocalyptic society would function. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of films made from, you know, everything from The Dark Knight to The Thing, which are about um, humans sort of descending into chaos. But there are very few films outside of the tradition of, you know, dystopian works like 1984 and Brave New World and Silent Green. There's very few non-dystopian works which address in detail exactly how society might be sort of rebuilt or restructured. And so you have, in Mad Max 3, this settlement called Bartertown, which is an intriguing vision because it appears so sort of radically different on the surface, at least different compared to what we've seen in the Mad Max films so far, when it has just been carnage, almost bordering on cannibalism, although that's only hinted at. Yeah. So it's sort of very radically different on the surface, but it actually runs in a scarily similar way to our own society. So when Max first enters, you know, everything seems civilised, you know, there's peaceful trading, there's a reliable energy supply, and conflicts are solved by sort of one-on-one -on -one gladiatorial combat, as opposed to going out on motorbikes, hacking people down with crossbows. But... As it turns out, the real power in this sort of community lies with those who control the energy, which is you know, sorts of hints of Chinatown in it. You know, the whole idea of in Chinatown, if you control the water, you can control people's lives. Mm -hmm. And this sort of... The uh, society represented by Auntie Entity is this, you know, protean democracy wanting to bring back, you know, civilization is actually supported by the mob because you have the character of Master Blaster who does control all the energy supply and is a thug. And so for all its claimed civility, there is something very sort of degenerate and macabre about the Thunderdome because it is essentially, you know, it is cage fighting yeah. with people hacking each other to death. You know, the weapons may have changed since Roman times in the sense that it's now chainsaws rather than, you know, uh, tridents and big sort of nets. But there is still something about, you know, yes, we're trying to bring back society, but on the other hand, those sort of animalistic elements still remain and we haven't quite figured out how to get rid of those yet. And whistles. Yes, and whistles, which we'll come <laughs> on to the fight in more detail in a little bit, but uh, I'd just like to sort of... Uh, focus on that. So there is great potential within the ideas that I've described in you know, sort of developing the themes and the characteristics of the first two films, you know, the idea of institutions persisting while humans still degenerating into an animistic state. 
And had George Miller made the whole film, you would have expected him to sort of, you know, get a grip on those ideas and follow through with them and really sort of made the best of the series. The problem is that because you have two directors working on the film, because you have George Miller doing all the action stuff and George Ogilvy doing all the talking in between, and there is a lot more talking in this instalment, mm. it doesn't have a sort of coherent directorial vision. And so for every great sort of section of dialogue, like uh, the speech in the Thunderdome when he's saying like, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dying times here. For every bit like that where you just go, oh yes, come on, there's sort of three or four sections which are sort of, nah, it's a bit ponderous and I'm not sure whether that's necessary and that's... It's, it's not completely schizophrenic in that you would go, well this is two different films, it, it still works but it's, it is, you, you can definitely tell the difference though. Yeah. It, but it, it's not completely bipolar or by winning yeah it's it's very good <laughs> slipping that reference yeah i mean there are films um like for instance the recent version of the wolfman where you can clearly see which bits have been shot originally and which are reshoots because the lighting's are different it isn't like that mm. but the, in terms of the tone and the actual sort of content it is sort of flipping back between the two um, so you have a film which is sort of pulling in different directions. You also have a film which is, in terms of its visual style, is increasingly unoriginal. I mean, there were moments in Mad Max 2 which were sort of a little bit like Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, both films obviously have a truck chase in them, and there was that sort of same sense of... But even in the bits that were quite similar, you always got the sense with George Miller that he wasn't just someone who was looking to sort of ape Hollywood for the sake of being successful. Mm -hmm. Whereas with Mad Max 3, there are whole sections of it which just look like Temple of Doom. You almost expect Tina Schoenner to shout, Kalima, <laughs> and pull out Mel Gibson's heart. <laughs> but so, I mean, the, the main similarity being, of course, that you know, there are sort of children involved in this settlement and a lot of them are slaves. And it is you know, shot very similarly with sort of grimy edges and everything's darker and everything's you know, a bit strange, frankly. You also have that sort of more sort of upmarket feel conveyed in the score. I mean, the first two films, when the score could get a word in Edgeway, was done by Brian May, not the guitarist from Queen, but the, you know, he had this sort of interesting synthesizer rumble going on which sort of counterpointed the engines whereas this film is scored by Maurice Jarre who's most famous for doing Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago you know these big mm. sprawling epics so there is a, a sense that you have a film which is on the one hand wanting to be like the first two in the sense of being sort of gritty and edgy and spiky and low budget but on the other hand something that wants to be sort of more mainstream and approachable and you know get recognition what was your view on, uh, you might be going to come up with anyway about the sort of, the links to Peter Pan? Yeah, I was going to come on to it, um, but we can talk about it now if you prefer. Yeah, was it the couple, they call it Tomorrow Morrowland, isn't it? Yes, which is, no, obviously very similar to Never Neverland. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there is a sort of connection between, the middle section, which is very much like Peter Pan, it sort of sums up all that's inherently good and bad about the film. Because, like I say, there is... There is something inherently interesting about having a post-apocalyptic society in which children exist, as opposed to just a society sort of dying in the way of children of men or something like mm. that. And there is an interesting idea when, when Mel Gibson is rescued by the children after wandering out into the wilderness, they kind of show him their version of history, which they basically characterized him as a sort of, as a sort of god who's come to save them, and they have this sort of wrecked plane in the middle of the wilderness that they believe he's going to fly and take them home. And it does raise the whole idea that the promised land of many religions, including the one that they've sort of invented, is essentially sort of skewed memory of the past combined with ignorance of the outside world. And that's a very interesting idea for an action film to, to tackle. Mm -hmm. But 
the problem is that it does just get lost because it does feel like a, a ripoff of Peter Pan, and because it's because it's tending towards the goofier end in terms of its humour. There are, although it does predate Steven Spielberg's Hook, there are whole sections of it where you can sort of see the resemblance between the two. I mean, I don't think it's as cynical a film as Hook because Hook is one of those films where you think this was made by someone who is trying to be a kid again, and it's quite commercial and it doesn't really work mm -hmm. i don't know whether you feel the same on hook yeah hook was i think it was it should have been it should have been everything because i remember watching when i was a little kid it should have been it should have had all the elements there which would, would have made it a great film it kind of just i remember time thinking nah, i'd rather see i'd rather see robin williams make mrs doubtfire too <laughs> what a horrible thought <laughs> <laughs> So those are the th that's, that's the kind of thing that kind of sums it up. So you're having a great ideas, but we can't execute them. And all the stuff in the Peter Pan section with the children, it never quite meshes properly with the Barter Town sequence, which is about sort of politics and gladiatorial combat and so forth. And in any case, if you've seen the ending of Mad Max 2, which it turns out is narrated by one of the survivors of the oil refinery, you sort of knew that there'd be children anyway because it's that's being narrated in the past. Mm -hmm. So, no, it's, there's not a great amount of dramatic tension. Um... On the plus side, again, there are the action sequences. I mean, all the stuff when George Miller is behind the camera is still, as you would expect, you know, it's, it's skillfully choreographed and it's frenetic, and the Thunderdome fight is absolutely great. Yeah. And it, we were sort of talking um, when we were going to see Source Code on Monday night about how they came up with it, because you have, you know, it's a cage fight. Okay, not enough. Let's put some chainsaws in it. Yeah, still not enough. They're on bungee cords. Sold! Let's yeah. do it. <laughs> Hot dog, we have a winner. <laughs> I mean, Robert, Roger Ebert actually praised this as one of the great creative action scenes in the movies. I think it was the best fight scene he claimed to have seen since, it, since the work of Bruce Lee, which is very high praise from Roger Ebert because he's a big Bruce Lee fan. And, you know, it's... It's not just that it's a nice sort of novel idea of seeing Mel Gibson sort of bouncing around and trying to hack someone with an axe, but it is actually well, sort of well paced and well shot, and the performances are pretty good even when they're sort of flinging each other around. I mean, Gibson, for all the stuff that's been written about him and for all the times in this film when he does just sort of wander around like he's just come out of a Duran Duran video, when he's in the zone and when his life is being threatened, he does have that sort of burning, frightening charisma, which kind of, I think I described it in one of the previous reviews of, I'm going to explode, but you can trust me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's exactly what it is. Uh, but again, although sequences like that are very interesting and very well done, because there is this sort of split between the directors, they do feel more like set pieces, whereas in the first two films, it was very much the action sequences and the chase bits, particularly in the first Mad Max, when it starts with a ten-minute chase, it felt sort of integrated into it, and it didn't just feel like, yeah. uh, we've got ten minutes to kill, let's have another car chase. Yeah, so you can kind of, uh, the, the Thunderdome fight, you can kind of watch it as a, well, as it, as it exists as an eight-minute clip on YouTube, because it starts off with, the, you know, it's kind of like a boxing match with the guy introducing the competitors and stuff like that. And yes. It, it does feel like it, you could just lift that chunk out and just have it as a, like, it's just a little clip, do you yeah. know what I mean? So, but it's, yeah, anyway. Yeah, it's, a, it's a very good set piece, but it is a set piece, and, uh, no. and when, even when you have this, the very elaborate set piece at the end, like the train chase, which is sort of quite similar to the truck chase in Mad Max 2, even when that works well, there are sort of things in it which sort of make it a bit disappointing. I mean, the... The first two films, when, no, both of them were 18 certificates, so when somebody got, no, hit with a, hit with a truck or got punched, you really thought, actually, these people are getting hurt. Yeah. No, there wasn't a huge amount of blood being shown on screen, and a lot of that stuff was implied, particularly in the first film, but you originally thought, 
yes, these characters are really in danger. Whereas in this one, which is a 15 certificate, so there's still, you know, a fair bit of graphic stuff, but not a huge amount, you get sort of more sort of goofy plays than that. So when, um, there's a villain called Iron Bar who um, gets his hair caught on a pole which is on the edge of the train and instead of sort of being dragged along the floor he has to sort of jump over a load of hoops which become like hurdles and you think yeah it's funnier but it's not in keeping with the tone or yeah. in another one where uh, Max has to pull a spear out of a driver's leg and rather than sort of screaming his head off he says oh it's fine just place it for comedy yeah and which is fine I mean you can play that sort of thing for comedy but within the sort of within the tone of the film it is a bit disappointing yeah so uh, just to round off because we've only got 20 minutes left i mean i think it's the best way to describe it is an enjoyable disappointment in the sense <laughs> that there are all sorts of things wrong with it i mean it is too close to steven spielberg it doesn't connect with its ideas and it is a bit too goofy for its own good but it's still a perfectly decent action movie which actually does have some ideas it is the most ambitious of the max, max films in the sense that it does attempt to sort of broaden out the universe and mel gibson is very good tina turner is actually quite good not just in terms of her singing but she actually manages to sort of carry herself quite well mm -hmm. and uh, doesn't completely look ridiculous she you were telling us though she does look ridiculous now in the outfit yeah but that's because <laughs> there was a, a secret so she's semi-retired now but there was um something i think it was for her 70th birthday where yeah. she came on in the auntie entity regalia and did look a bit out of place i mean i'm not a huge <laughs> tina turner fan um in many incidentally there is if you're a who fanboy like myself there is a sort of very very clouded in joke to tommy in the film i don't know if you spotted it no um basically the the type the character that the uh, the the children in tomorrow Morrowland sort of brand mel gibson is captain walker after skywalker mm -hmm. so it's, uh, it's star wars as well and of course captain walker is the uh, title of Tommy's father in Tommy in both films star Tina Turner so there is a very sort of it's a very I didn't expect you to because that is, that is just a sort of in joke that fanboys like me will get Fair enough. <laughs> but uh, I just thought I'd mention it so it is the most ambitious of the films it is too goofy for its own good and it doesn't hang together but as a passingly enjoyable and slightly intelligent action film it's good fun not as good as the first two but perfectly fine just on the fanboy sort of thing there, just look on the emails. Not an, no one email at our show, but Bruce Campbell has been emailing in a lot. <laughs> Not the star of The Evil Dead, surely. I think it might be, yeah. <laughs> well, if he's listening, Bruce, we love your films. Go yeah. and work with Sam Raimi again. Yeah, so thanks for the email, Bruce. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we should probably just mention before we get on to the new releases, um, the cult film next week, because it's Easter, will be doing The Long Good Friday, but it will be on a Friday because of the Steve Marriott tribute taking place this time next week on Lionheart. Right, so what, uh, what time is your show on? It'll be, it'll be 1 till 2, I think, on Friday afternoon. Right. But, but that'll be on the website. The podcasts are available anyway. Yeah. Lionheart Radio. Right then, new releases time. Where do you want to start? There's a lot of big ones, there's a lot of small ones, and there's, there's a really, really bad one. <laughs> well, let's start with just a brief word about the re-release of The Last Picture Show, because we can do that in about 30 seconds. Okay. Um, it's a 40th anniversary re-release of the debut feature from Peter Bogdanovich, who, and it was in many ways one of the defining films of the new Hollywood era, and the new Hollywood, the people who brought in you know, Francis Ford Coppola and uh, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, Roman Polanski, no, they're very interesting directors, and Lucas isn't really a director. Um, so, it's, it's <laughs> steady. Uh, it's a series of intertwining stories set around a dying town in middle America, and it's shot in black and white, famous for the fact that it's one of 
Jeff Bridges' very first starring film roles, and he does look every bit as charismatic as he did, you know, in, you know, as he still does, because it's Jeff Bridges. Mm -hmm. It's sort of, it's an interesting film for the fact that it's very sort of elegiac in the sense that it is shot in black and white, and it is about the idea of the younger generation deserting a town which doesn't fit with their ideas anymore. It's a coming-of-age film, but it's also completely unsentimental. It is also the best thing Peter Bogdanovich did. I mean, he's sort of become forgotten in film history a bit because he didn't make that many great films. I mean, a few years after this, he made a film called Long Last Love, which was a sort of a film with Burt Reynolds uh, about the songs of Cole Porter, and it's so bad that it has not yet been released on home video. Really? Yeah. You can find it on YouTube, but it never got a home release, and it effectively killed his career. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's worth seeing if you haven't already I think you might have to travel because I don't think the Times Show is showing it but if you haven't seen it or you're interested in the new Hollywood era then Last Picture Show is a very good place to start good, good. alright then what else is there um, let's do uh, Red Riding Hood next shall we um, speaking of you're f you said you were a Twilight fan I certainly am I like the books I like the films um, yeah so this is the new film from Catherine Hardwick, who directed the first Twilight yeah. film. Team Edward, by the way, in case anyone's listening. I've got no idea what you're talking about, but fair enough. <laughs> oh, yes, of course I do. Uh, so it's a new take on the story of Red Riding Hood, which Hardwick claims is sort of taking it back to its roots. You know, the, the Charles Perrault version before the Brothers Grimm got their fingers on it and you know, did their own thing, took all the werewolves out, basically. Yeah. So the story is Amanda Seyfried plays a girl called Valerie, who is living in the village of Daggerhorn, somewhere in the mountains. Uh, the village is under attack from the werewolf, and the village is sent a priest called Father Solomon, who is played by Gary Oldman in an, a very strange accent and a massive beard to sort of exercise the village and hunt it out. There's been a lot of criticism about this. I mean, it's got a 12% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which is harsh even for sort of, you know, twilight areas. Yeah, that's Eddie Murphy's sort of territory. Yes, that is Norbert territory. <laughs> and f from what I've been reading, a lot of the criticism does seem to be sort of ad hominem or sort of using this film as a proxy way of getting at twilight. There was one review, I think, from the New York Post, which said, uh, Catherine Hardrick clearly wanted to make twilight and she clearly seems unable to stop. And she, I mean, I think that is very incredibly harsh. I mean, I'm completely agnostic on Twilight, because I haven't seen the books, I haven't, I haven't read the books, so I haven't seen the film, so I, I'm, I don't have any kind of great thing against it. As for the film itself, it does look pretty bad, I'm afraid. I mean, it does, the, act, the acting, if you've seen the trailer, is quite hammy. I mean, Amanda Seyfried does that thing she did in Mean Girls quite a lot of just looking gormlessly at the screen with her mouth slightly open. Um, it's, I'm not sold on the idea of integrating rock music into it, although there is sort of precedent in that. There's a film called Freeway with Reese Witherspoon in which sort of retells the Red Riding Hood myth, but in the 90s, and that's sort of edgy and strange. And the visuals are sort of so overcranked with the rich sort of redness and the white snow and the darkness and so forth you begin to think yes it's pretty but the more i realize how pretty it is the more i wonder whether there's anything going on underneath there's a lot of that i've noticed especially if in twilight even in the books the this the color scheme that the, the black the white uh, the, the dark and the light sort of thing but with red the theme of red runs through obviously for twilight it's blood for here it's red riding hood yeah and there's schindler's list it's that girl's coat but i'm not comparing this to schindler's list no <laughs> although am i well no i would i would compare them in the sense that i would describe both as admirable failures because i yeah. do think there are interesting ideas behind the execution of red riding Hood. i mean it's interesting idea to take it back to before the Grimm's fairy tale and to to reapproach it because you know there are a dearth of films out there for young or teenage girls the problem is that it is badly executed and it is twilight light i'm afraid but in a year we're not going to get twilight four or four a until the end of the year it should still make a good chunk of money it will yeah it will take money as a sort of stopgap, but i don't think it has any more worth than that yeah okay, 
Um, let's do Meek's Cut-Off, because this is the film of the week, so uh, we want to get it in before the end of the show. Um, new film from Kelly Reichardt, starring Michelle Williams, who was recently in Blue Valentine. And they previously collaborated on this very odd film called Wendy and Lucy, which is about a, a woman developing a sort of platonic relationship with her dog. Oh, right, I, haven't Strictly I haven't seen that film then, yeah. Yes. Um, it's, so the story is, it's set in 1845 in the American West, and you have three families, of which I think Williams plays the mother of one of the, of, uh, the head of one of the families. They're being led along the Oregon Trail, which is this you know, passage from the eastern seaboard of America through to, across the plains to the new land of Oregon and California, which has been colonized. Um, they're being led across this by a guide who is called Meek, that's his surname. Uh, he decides halfway through that he's going to take them on a shortcut, hence Meek's Cut-Off, because that's the name of the trail that he's taking them on. But they end up in the desert, lost and starving to death, until a Native American comes along and says, I can show you the way to get to Oregon. And it's the whole idea of they have to decide between, well, do we trust this guy or do we trust the guy who's led us this far but is actually incompetent? But no. will inevitably one day inherit the earth? <laughs> Very good. Sorry. You had to get it. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> so, um, of course, that does fit in. So, there have been a number of films which have dealt with the sort of conflict between um, imperial powers and the colonials, loosely speaking. I mean, obviously, in this territory, the biggest comparison is dancing with, Dances with Wolves. Mm -hmm. uh, I, where do you stand on Dances with Wolves? Uh, I thought I could have done with being another hour longer, to be honest. <laughs> it's like four hours. It's, it's indulgent. Yes. That's, that's, that, that, that's a that's a plight where I can. It, it's it's a good enough film, but you have to watch it in two two or three is, chunks. Yes, it is a case of Kevin Costner saying, "Take me seriously. <laughs> I'm an actor. This is worthy, important stuff." And you just go. <clears throat> yeah. There are interesting things in it. There are also comparisons with. Um, did you ever see a film called The Proposition? No, I haven't seen it. There's one I want to see with Guy Pearce and Ray Winston and all that stuff. Yeah, I, I saw that recently and it's, it's, it kind of takes the whole idea of the cowboys and Indian story and westerns and uproots it to British-controlled Australia. No, it's, it's flawed, but it's an interesting kind of work. The central debate in all of these films, and particularly with Mick's cut-off, is do you trust the man who is of our creed and colour but is incompetent, or do we trust someone who is, politically speaking, the enemy but might actually save us? And there is a biblical thing in there as well because of the thing that you mentioned, you know, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth, and there is the whole thing about Americans inheriting the earth mm. from the Native Americans. Well, one man's inheriting is another man's stealing in a bloody war. Um, like a lot of projects that are sort of backed by or in and around the Sundance Festival, it's in the end a very simple story, but it is carried by the performances. I mean, Michelle Williams, who was very good in Blue Valentine, I think she holds herself up pretty well. There's also a supporting role by Paul Dano, whom I'm not the biggest fan of, but he was, um, but he was okay in There Will Be Blood. I just didn't find him that convincing. True. Um, but he, he had his milkshake drunk. <laughs> yes. I mean, I don't, I, Paul Dane has a lot of things, but he's not a fundamentalist preacher. But he has experience of Westerns before. See, he's on, he's, because <laughs> he's, because he starred in one of his early films as a girl next door, he's always got a free pass for me. Was he in The Girl Next Door? He certainly was. Whereabouts? He was one of the three people, I can't say his character's name because it is ridiculously offensive for this early in the morning. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> Glad you're showing some form of restraint. So yeah, Mick's cut off. It's an interesting film. In the same way as Winter's Bone last year, it might end up being a bit too thin on plot and a bit too thick on atmosphere, but it's probably a very interesting piece of work. Mm -hmm.
Good. Shall we move on to, um, well, do you want to do Your Highness or should we get Scream 4 out of the way first? Let's do Scream 4. Okay. Um, He's got a knife. <laughs> yes. A uh, new film from Wes Craven, whose previous effort was My Soul to Take, which I don't think even got released over here in the end, because we reviewed it in January and then it sort of mm, yes. disappeared. Oh, uh, was, that, was that the week when you had that I spit on your grave and yeah. that horrific week? <laughs> yeah. It wasn't, yeah. Yeah, in terms of films out, that was, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's a new film from him, set many years after the events of the first three films so you have um sydney who's played by nev is it neve or nev campbell either i've heard both okay yeah. well let's say nev uh played by nev campbell she's a successful author who has now uh, written a self-help book she comes back to her old town on the last stop of her book tour and she gets a phone call from a familiar voice and bad stuff starts happening um now Are here's you happy with your home insurance <laughs> <laughs> or is it a different type of call? Do you know, <laughs> if you're struggling with debt <laughs> so that's when the parody will come on. <laughs> so here's the thing. When Scream first came out in 96, I think, it was, it was a watershed moment in horror because it was about... It was a film which showed how the genre could effectively turn on itself but still be funny. I mean, it managed to take the cliches of the slasher film, which had some sort of become old and tired and quite reprehensible in some cases, and showed them up as cliches. So you could sort of feel a bit about someone, oh, yes, I know I'm watching a horror film. I know I should be scared. But there were also things in Scream that made it a proper horror film, like the sequence at the beginning with Drew Barrymore. Mm -hmm. We won't give away what happens, but suffice to say, it is very creepy and quite scary. So... As the series went on, I mean, Scream 2 is perfectly fine, but by the time you get to the third, they had sort of become a prisoner of their own conventions, and they'd started becoming yeah, sort of... you had the Scary movies. movies franchise, which was kind of kind of running side by side with the second and third one, sort of killing it a bit as well, which, which kind of didn't help with matters. Yeah, and also you get things like, um, I know what you did last summer and stuff like that, this whole wave of effectively new slasher films, which which claim to be sort of self-aware and postmodern, mm. but are effectively pretending that the 80s didn't happen and it's okay to just go around chasing women in lingerie with an axe or with a knife or a power or whatever. So, on the one hand, there are lots of reasons why we shouldn't sort of embrace Scream 4, because, it, I mean, to have made it after so long, there's clearly a financial motivation. I mean, it has the backing of Bob and Harvey Weinstein, who were notorious, you know, very hands-on producers. I mean, I still haven't forgiven them for messing up the Brothers Grimm, the Terry Gilliam film. And it does sort of tie itself up in knots in the sense that it doesn't just refer back to the kind of old horror films like Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street, but it also refers back to the first three films in the series, and I'm not sure... There's a meta, meta theater, meta film is fine, but there's only so much meta you can do before it sort of becomes much too much of an academic exercise and therefore not emotionally involving enough to be scary. What was the time we got? When was the third one out? Third one was 2000. So it's, it's over ten years. Is there... The audience that saw that... Is there still a, a market for them? I, well, know that, I know there's a next, another generation, but if you're going to constantly in your fourth and refer to the previous three, which they may not have seen, is that not a bit, like, weird? I don't know how much they're going to refer to the first three. Suffice to say that a lot of the... There, are, there is a sequence in the trailer on, on, where there's loads of people on a bus all dressed as Ghostface, so it is about sort of addressing how the mythos of Scream has become sort of... Um, incorporated into sort of popular culture so it says it's addressing it on that front but i think a large proportion of the people who go and see scream 4 will be fans of the first one because they'll probably if you went to see scream 
Because it was a 15 originally, wasn't it? Something like that. Yeah. So if you went to see the first Scream as a teenager, you'd have been sort of 21 by the time the last one came out. So you'd be in your 30s now. Mm. And I suppose, going back to the financial issue, there's the whole idea of, because we had the remake of A Nightmare on Elm Street last year, which Craven famously wasn't involved in, and it might have been the case of, right, I'm sick and tired of people stamping on my territory, give me the money and I'll make a proper horror film. Yeah. So there's all sorts of things wrong with it, but it is good, on the other hand, to see a horror film which is sort of rooted in the genre and knows what proper horror is about and understands that it isn't just about locking people in a room for two hours and torturing them. So, swings and roundabouts on that one, I think. Right. Let's give Your Highness a bit of a kick. Yeah. Now, when we <laughs> went to see Source Code, you, um, you, we passed the poster of this and you said it was one of the worst you'd ever seen or something. Oh, yeah, it's, it's the trailer as well. We'll have to be quick about this. It doesn't really deserve a lot of oxygen anyway. Um, yeah. Natalie Portman obviously recently won an Oscar for The Black Swan and obviously has bits of greatness in her, but then she also, after she does that, she, she also can mix in her Star Wars career and You're then that, and now this. <laughs> and basically the, she, I don't know, she's kind of in it as eye candy, the, the, the trailer, the only thing in the trailer that kind of goes, look, Natalie Portman's bum, and it's like, really, if that's the best you've got to come up with in the trailer, it's, it's just, does, if, the, if the trailer's not funny, you know you're, in, you're struggling for a comedy. Yeah, I mean, just to give the sort of the background for what it's worth, because I think we're agreeing on this one. It's directed by David Gordon Green, who started out as sort of a very interesting, low-budget American director, made a film called George Washington, which was sort of like kids, but in you know, mixed with Southern comfort. But most recently, made Pineapple Express, which is the sort of the Seth Rogen pen comedy, and it's very much like this. So it's the story is for what there is. Uh, it's uh, no set in a non-specific medieval fantasy land. Two brothers, one of whom is played by your favourite actor, James Franco. Certainly is. Yeah. Um, his girlfriend, played by the Queen of Kooks, Zooey Deschnell, gets kidnapped by an evil wizard. They have to go off and save her. Danny McBride plays the younger brother who's only interested in getting stoned. Here's the thing. When stoner comedy started in the 70s with, you know, Cheech and Chong up in smoke and, to some extent, Animal House, it was sort of excusable because the people who made them were sort of young and didn't know any better. Mm -hmm. I mean, when Landis made Animal House, it was fine, but then he sort of moved on and made better stuff like The Blues Brothers and American Werewolf. But like Pineapple Express, this is a film which is kind of pretending that the 70s didn't end, and therefore it's still okay to just have a film which people smoke pot and go, uh -huh, yeah, this is really funny, you know. <laughs> When you get beyond that and look at the actual, the rest of the comedy, beyond the stuff which is just putrid and retrograde, the big problem that I have with it is that it's not Men in Tights. And for all the things that are wrong with Robin Hood Men in Tights, the Mel Brooks film, which is, yeah. you know, only sporadically funny, it does look like a masterpiece compared to Your Highness because it is just a lot of bad slapstick. I mean, there's the whole joke in the trailer about someone sucking out poison from Jane Franco's thigh, which I remember Dave Allen doing in the early 70s, and even then it wasn't funny. Yeah, uh, yeah, that, I've been watching it going, really, that's where we're going with it? Yeah, it, it's just, it's frankly pathetic. Yeah. And everyone involved should be thoroughly ashamed yeah. and can do so much better. Yeah, well, they can. They've proved they can. They've yeah. Oscar nominated and Oscar winners. Yeah. yeah, so let's just do two minutes quickly on Winnie the Pooh, which is a sort of children's offering of the week. New big screen outing for a character created by Amy Milne, based upon three of his short stories. It's done as a sort of hand-drawn animation with a voice cast, including uh, comedian Craig Ferguson and John Cleese. John Cleese is sort of... His later career has been about him sort of turning up in animations for about 20 minutes and picking up the check. Yeah, well, do you, you heard the thing about he went on tour recently because he got divorced and his, his wife took all his money. Oh, so yes, he, the alimony tour. Yeah, <laughs> it's just literally after the money, so yeah. at least he's honest about it. Yeah, but at least he's actually still funny, <laughs> unlike some people. So the, st the, the story is that Pooh and the other creatures in the Hundred Acre Wood are looking for a new tale for Eeyore. And that's about it. It's a very short film. It's only 63 minutes long, including two shorts at the beginning and end. So it is, it's 
very it's technically speaking only just a feature film and in the same because it's because it's animated in the same hand drawn style as the original shorts it could easily have passed for you know sort of something that happened you no know, on I don't know, mid-afternoon television. Mm. I mean, in the same way as the, um, the version of The Wind in the Willows from the 90s with Rick Mail as Toad, which sort of, I think, got a brief theatrical release, but it was a TV mm. film, albeit a very good TV film, and I like Rick Mail in that very much. So, in spite of that, I mean, it's, it's target audience, which is sort of under 10s. Uh, it, it's enjoyable. I mean, it's sort of cute and charming to see all those characters again, and there's nothing in the trailer which makes you think you put that in just for the adults, although there is one moment of Pooh sort of dancing in a pot of honey, which is like... Well, it's not like a burlesque act because it, no, that's but mm. it's you no know, like the champagne glass routine that Dieter Van Teese does. But it's only a brief resemblance of that. And there is a sort of funny moment in the trailer when he sort of he has a craving for honey and he sees a frog ribbit and then it turns into a pot of honey and starts hopping around, which is sort of like Alice in Wonderland. But like I say, it's cute and charming. It's probably not going to work for anyone over the age of ten. But if you if it's the Easter holidays and it's a rainy Sunday afternoon. It'll fill the time very nicely. I suppose, well, if you've got, as you say, it's aimed at under 10s, the running time is probably spot on for them. Yeah, quite possibly, actually. Yeah, and also, I always find when I watch Winnie the Pooh, there's always seems to be this underlying thing of sadness with it. Well, yeah, because the last chapter of Winnie the Pooh, yeah, when Christian yeah. Robin leaves him in the Hundred Acre Wood. Oh, sorry, spoiler. Yeah, but um, even, even that, that is just, just running through it, it just has, that, it has a little, little vibe to it, anyway. Yes. But anyway, so we probably should round up. It's coming up to uh, 11 o'clock. Film of the Week's Meek's cut off, and I'll see you next Friday at 1 o'clock. Yes, thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week. Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.